O'Keefe, and this is Techno Curious, a podcast for the techno perplexed. Technology. It's everywhere and it's the future. But if there's an inbox and outbox of life, engaging with tech, at least for me, is in the box that reads too hard. But if engaging with tech is hard, ignoring it is impossible, especially if you're concerned about the world in which we live. So TechnoCurious is going to examine the biggest tech topics of the day, and we'll be speaking to some of the brightest minds working in and thinking about technology. This first episode was recorded live at the Office Group in King's Cross, London. In it, I spoke with Dr. Hannah Fry about how algorithms, or if you prefer, artificial intelligence, is being used to make some important, even life-changing decisions in criminal justice, health, and sentencing. What follows is an introduction to algorithms. And without giving anything away, I'll just tell you that I mistakenly awarded Hannah a promotion by calling her Professor before we started recording. Hannah, you're an assistant professor Associate professor. Ah, oh, damn! You just you just gave me a demotion there, but um, <laughs> undeserved. It's just a sliding scale, isn't it? Okay, hold on. Associate professor at University College London in the mathematics of cities, which sounds way cooler than just normal mathematics, <laughs> doesn't it? Um, you're also host a very popular podcast called The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry, which is with the wonderful Adam Rutherford and you fronted a number of documentaries for the BBC. We're here because we're going to talk about your book, Hello World. Hello World, or as the subtitle goes, How to be Human in the Age of the Machine. This book is all about algorithms. We are uh, now living really in a world which is increasingly dominated um, by by algorithms. Um, I've worked uh, with data and algorithms for about the last decade in, in my day job uh, as an associate professor um, <laughs> at UCL. But uh, you know, I think in the last three or four years, anyway, we've really seen this um, this really new tre- this new trend of machines being able to compete with us and often outperform us in things that we thought of that were uniquely human abilities that we thought that only we were able to do. Um, and I just wanted to kind of kick off with something that I think really demonstrates that fact. So I've got an example for you from the world of music, just to see if you can tell the difference between what a computer is capable of and what a human is capable of. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to play you two pieces of music. One of them, oh sorry, both of them I should say, are chorales. Uh, both of them are performed by a live orchestra. One was composed by the great Baroque master Bach, and the other is composed by a computer in the style of Bach. And I want to see if you can tell the difference. Okay, so uh, here are your two pieces of music. Your job is to spot the real Bach. Okay, here we go. <laughs> So that was option one. Uh, Ready for option two? Here we go. 
isn't it, really? <laughs> um, but nonetheless, I am going to test you. Uh, your job now, you're going to, I'm going to ask you to vote on what you think the real bark is. Um, okay, but first off, uh, who's not going to vote? Oh, good. <laughs> no one. Excellent. Okay, who thinks that the real bark is option one there? Okay, that I would say is just over half. How about option two? Oh, it's pretty much split, isn't it? It's 50... I mean, you're choosing at random, basically, guys, aren't you? <laughs> That's essentially what's happening here. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, actually, the real answer, those of you who said option two were correct, that was the real... Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. Option one was uh, something written by uh, a computer, namely Experiments in Machine Intelligence by uh, the composer David Cope. Um, this kind of very famous experiment uh, that I think really, really demonstrates just how capable machines are at, at replicating uh, or seeming to replicate human um, levels of ability. The way that that computer mimicked Bach was by using an algorithm. Um, now, I am very aware that when people hear the word algorithm, it makes about 85% of people want to gouge out their own eyes. Um, very aware of that. Um, I mentioned that to someone at a tech conference once, and they agreed with me, but they added that it makes the other 15% of us mildly aroused. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'll let you decide which of those camps you're in. Um, but, you know, just so we are all completely on the same page, I just want to define what an algorithm is properly. Um, so an algorithm, it's just a series of logical steps that takes you from some input through to some output. So uh, a cake recipe, for instance, that is an example um, of an algorithm. The input would be the ingredients, the logical steps is the recipe itself, and uh, the output then is the cake that you get right at the end. Now, the way that David Cope's algorithm there worked is much like, the way that it composed that, that bark music is, is much like the kind of predictive text algorithms that you have on your phone. So its input, rather than being the, the text that you've written into your phone over, over the number, a number of years, its input is, is instead all of the chorales that Bach has ever composed. And the logical steps are very, very simple. All you do is you seed the algorithm, you give it a chord, and then it tells you what the next most likely chord to come up in Bach's original work is. And you repeat that process until eventually you have a string of chords together in an original piece of music. Um, now, it is very like, then, the game... I, I don't know if you've seen this going around on the internet, um, the game where you write into your phone, uh, you seed it with some words. So, for example, I was born, um, and then you press the middle button on the predictive text of your phone and allow it to complete your own autobiography. Now, I've done my one here for you, just, and I'm going to show you just because just it's amusing. You can get a sense of the type of things that I write on my phone. Here we go. It starts off fine, gets a bit weird towards the end. Uh, I was born... And then it says, to be a good person, and I would be happy to be with you. A lot of people, I know that you are not getting my emails. <laughs> and I don't have any time for that. <laughs> Just a little insight into my character there. Um, now, if I play you back a little snippet of that bark music, you can just about hear those very simple chord transitions that are going on in the background. And that's essentially what the algorithm is doing. So here we go. kind of just hear that, um, that going on in the background. Now, the results, uh, especially of that David Cope example, um, they're very impressive, and uh, you know, half of you were persuaded by it as being um, you know, the real master himself. But I do think that algorithms are still a very long way away from being as good at humans as it's truly composing very beautiful music. 
But I think that there are some areas in, in real everyday life where they probably are better than us already and where we start to rely on them and, and defer to them more than our own judgment. And one very good example of that is in the case of navigation, in the case of sat-nav. Um, and I think that this raises sort of um, a very interesting point, really, that uh, I try and think about quite a lot in my book. Because let me tell you this story about uh, some Japanese tourists who went on a, a holiday to Brisbane, west coast of Australia. And one day they decided to hire a car and go on a little road trip. So they were going from um, you know, the destination where they were staying to a very popular tourist destination. So they popped into their sat-nav and the sat-nav said that it's essentially just a straight line between the two, which was great. Small problem, there was actually a whopping great body of water between their origin and destination that they hadn't spotted. Um, now, in fairness, these Japanese tourists, they weren't local, so perhaps they didn't have access to a map. Perhaps they didn't speak English very well, so they didn't notice that the place that they wanted to drive to was called North Stradbrook Island, clues in the name. But you would think that when it came to actually driving on water, <laughs> they would know to overrule their sat-nav. But apparently they didn't. Um, now, I, I know those of you who are listening to the podcast can't see the photograph here, but it's worth Googling because essentially they actually literally drove into the sea, right, and had to abandon their car. Um, but my favourite thing of all that happened was about half an hour later, a real ferry sailed past um, their ab <laughs> abandoned hire car. Now, I think that we can all chuckle at the, the very sort of silliness of this story, but I think that within it there is this moral that, that speaks about how much we're willing to put our trust in technology. And actually, very recently, I think I've come to believe that these Japanese tourists really aren't alone. I think that when it comes to placing blind faith in a machine, I think that this actually is a mistake that all of us are really capable of making. So one last story for you, just to round off my time, just to kind of illustrate the, the kind of ideas that I play with in the book. If you take the story of what happened in Idaho, just as an example of this. So back in 2014, there was a group of uh, 16 disabled residents of Idaho who got some unexpectedly bad news. The Department of Health and Welfare in Idaho, they just introduced a, a new algorithm, a, a new budget tool that was going to calculate how much state support each of the residents were entitled to. Now, these, these were people with severe disabilities who qualified for residential care, but who had chosen to be cared for in their own home, so cared for within the community. So the money that they received um, was really instrumental to them keeping their independence. So every resident went into uh, the department and ha sat down and uh, the, the budget tool calculated how much they were um, entitled to. And some of the residents actually found out that they had more money than in previous years, had thousands of uh, dollars more than in previous years, while other residents ended up with a deficit of tens of thousands of dollars, putting them at serious risk of being institutionalised. Now, from the outside, no one could really make sense of what was going on with this. It looked like the machine was just making these choices completely at random. But the problem was it was kind of impossible to argue with the computer. So many people trusted it within the government that uh, you couldn't question its authority, really. Now, in the end, the, the residents had to bring a class-action lawsuit against, um, against the, the department to insist that that budget tool was handed over for scrutiny. And then when it was finally opened up for scrutiny, it was revealed that this swanky algorithm that held so much power over the residents wasn't some kind of sophisticated AI or some beautifully crafted mathematical model. It was actually just an Excel spreadsheet, and quite a crappy Excel spreadsheet at that. It had covered in errors, 
just, uh, loads of flaws all over the formulas. It had so many statistical flaws that the court would eventually rule it unconstitutional. And the point really I think that, that I want to make here is that thankfully an awful lot of the algorithms that we have put in positions of authority aren't quite as flawed as this one. But I think that there is a problem, that we have these machines that are capable of doing the most remarkable things, but they're also going to be capable of making mistakes. And I think that if we put flawed machines in position of power, we have to think very, very carefully about what happens when things go wrong. And I think that we have to acknowledge that we can't always trust ourselves to know where the line is. Thank you very much, Hannah. That was brilliant. I should say that an important element of Technocurious is that we challenge ourselves to have a go with technology ourselves. So this afternoon at home, I got a bit hands-on with an algorithm, Ooh. and uh, I brought the outcome, actually. Ooh, this yes. is exciting. Yes, it was a rules-based <laughs> algorithm. <laughs> a plate of biscuits. A plate of techno-chip cookies, <laughs> TM. So the algorithm behind these came from a BBC Good Food website, and everyone can have a little taste of them later. <laughs> So actually, so a rules-based algorithm is something I can understand, as you see. It's the other algorithms that get a bit tricksy, actually. Yes. And what I want to know is, is a AI essentially jumped up statistics? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, to be honest, as it stands at the moment, I think that we have had more of a revolution in statistics than we have had in intelligence. But that's not to say that that will always be the case. I mean, I think that there are some people, you know, within this, this block, I think, you know, attached to this building, um, given our position next to uh, where Google and DeepMind are, who are doing some really remarkable things that are trying to push that boundary forwards. But I think that all the progress that we've seen to date is really mostly about statistics. I should say about the difference between rule-based and non-rule-based, actually. Because this, this sort of um, the, the cake or the cookie example is, um, that's an example of, of, of the sort of traditional type of algorithm where you write a very clear list of instructions, do this, do this, turn your oven on to 200 degrees and, you know, whatever, beat the butter. AI or machine learning takes a slightly different approach. Rather than, uh, so you can think of this in terms of, um, you can think of this like training a dog how to sit, right? So when you're training a dog how to sit, you don't write out a list of instructions for that dog. You don't say move this muscle and then move that muscle and then, you know, whatever. Or you don't make the dog kind of sit and watch hours and hours of YouTube videos of other dogs sitting. <laughs> what you do is you just clearly communicate with the dog what your objective is, what you want the dog to do, and then you reward it whenever it, it does that behavior. And everything in the middle, everything between you communicating the, the, the task and rewarding it when it gets it correct, you let the dog work it out for itself. And that is much more the approach of machine learning. But yeah, up till now, the things that they've been doing have been really kind of quite statistical. And, and tell me, when a machine learns, it can take unexpected turns right ones that we don't understand yeah yes. is that something we should worry about uh well hmm <laughs> so um to give you an example um so uh there was one uh, i think it was like a physics simulator where you had like a sort of simulated spider right like imagine you're in a quite crappy computer game um let me see if i can remember this correctly they had they had like this spider and they wanted this spider to move from one side of the screen to the other 
all within a completely simulated environment. And the rules were that it was only allowed to use two legs or something. So I think they were trying to encourage it to, to stand up and walk. But quite often, when you don't, you're not explicit about the rules of these things, your, your machine learning algorithms or your, your AI can end up being a bit naughty and it can end up cheating and surprising its owners. So I think this one in particular flipped over onto its back and then like skidded along the floor using two legs at any one time to push itself rather than what the, the, you know, the, the designers had expected it to. And you do see this quite often, things, things kind of ending up going, finding some strange route that you weren't, um, you weren't intending. Should we be worried about that? I mean, if you had human-level intelligent creatures that could control all kinds of different things, that had power enough to control all kinds of different things, then I think there's an argument that you would be worried about that. But I, don't, I think we're quite a long way away from that right now. There's no point worrying about evil AI. Well, you know, I had a debate with someone about this on Twitter today. Um, for me, personally, I, I'm not worried about a, evil AI. There's a uh, computer scientist called um, Andrew Nung, I think that's how you pronounce his surname, who, he has this great phrase, which I really like, which is that worrying about evil AI is a bit like worrying about overcrowding on Mars. It's so far into the future that there are so many steps to get there before, you know, it's, it's, it's like thinking, you know, a century in, in the future. Not everyone agrees with him, admittedly, but I think I'm on his side, actually. I think that there are much more pressing concerns about, you know, our relationship with machines and um, the biases that they have and, you know, the sort of tangled web of complications that comes in when you try and, you know, shift traditional human structures into taking these machines into account. I think that, for me, is a far more pressing concern. Why don't we talk about, I mean, I, I think there's an awful lot of um, misapprehension about uh, AI and algorithms and tech. So let's, let's move away from that and let's talk about the best ones. I mean, <laughs> what are algorithms really best at doing? Best at doing? Oh, okay. They're good at a lot of stuff. They're very good at a lot of stuff. One of the things that, a, that, that algorithms are incredibly good at is picking up on very, very, very tiny clues and looking way into the future as to what those clues might mean. So an example of this kind of thing, right, the kind of thing that I'm talking about, is something called the nun study. Um, and it's called the nun study because it involved 678 nuns and was some work done by the epidemiologist David Snowden. So these nuns were aged between about 75 and I think 101 years old um, at the start of the study. And David Snowden persuaded all of them to uh, let him test their cognitive ability every year of their life until their death. So you have this beautiful data set which shows the kind of decline that people have as they get older, how some people get dementia very early on, how others manage to sort of maintain um, cognitive ability into, into old age. But David Snowden also persuaded these nuns to donate their brains to the project after their deaths. So that meant that he could compare the symptoms they had in life with the physical symptoms of dementia within, uh, within their brains in death, right? And the unusual thing that they spotted is that actually there's not 
a direct comparison between those. So it's not true that the people who were um, suffered from dementia in life are the ones who have the worst brains in death. There are people, there's one, one woman in particular called Sister Mary, who maintained excellent cognitive, cognitive ability until she died aged 101. But you opened up her brain and it looked no different. It had the, the lesions, all the marks, all the hallmarks of dementia. It looked no different to someone who had lost you know, cognitive function. So the question is, what is it about some people that manage to keep this, uh, keep their, their, their sort of cognitive strength into later age? And the clue, it turns out, may actually be lying in another data set altogether from decades and decades and decades before any of these women ever showed any sign of the disease. So they also happen to have the essays that these women wrote when they entered the sisterhood, when they're sort of 19 and 20 years old. And what you can do, you can write a very, very simple algorithm that will analyze the complexity of the language in those essays. And you can forge a sort of statistical connection between that and the chances of you maintaining good cognitive strength into older age. Now, across medicine, we are seeing this pattern repeated. The algorithms that are trained to look not just to find tumors, but to predict the survival rates of, say, for example, women with breast cancer, they're not only good at finding the tumors, but they can also pick up on tiny, tiny, tiny clues in the surrounding tissue that can give you a really good indication of how serious that cancer will go on to be. And that is the stuff that's really important. You also mention in the book, uh, you, you know, a whole chapter about um, how algorithms are used in justice. Mm. And they're particularly used for calculating the risk of reoffending, which can then influence judges' uh, decisions about bail or not bail or uh, prison terms. If you were in the dock, who would you prefer <laughs> to be judging you? <laughs> a human mm. or a machine? Okay, well, <laughs> I, think it changes. I think the answer to this question changes depending on whether you're the person in the dock or whether you're designing the criminal justice system for the whole country. Because the fact is that there is much greater variation in what a human judge will do, okay? So if, if you just think of something very simple like sentencing, right? The, the variation in sentencing that you can get from different human judges is gonna be massive, whereas an algorithm will give you the same, um, same answer every time with the same data. Now, a lot of people who I speak to say that they would prefer a human judge because you know they have empathy, they have sort of emotion, but also they seem to think that the error will always work in their favor, right? Um, everyone sort of believes that they'd be the one to persuade the judge to be lenient. And I kind of, I, I do sort of understand that um, position. I, I probably would feel the same. But then I'm fortunate enough to sort of live in a, a to, to be a member of a group that's not traditionally discriminated against. Whereas I think if you're designing the criminal justice system for a country altogether, your top priority should be that your judgments are as logical, as consistent, and as unbiased as possible. And in that respect, I actually think that the, the algorithm, though they are definitely not perfect, actually offer a step in the right direction. I can understand that, uh, on the whole, a machine will be much more consistent than the irrational, imperfect human. But what happens when it goes wrong? Bad stuff. <laughs> The fact is, if you're building an algorithm to decide who poses a high risk to society, the only way you can base that decision within the algorithm is by looking historically at all the people who've already passed through the criminal justice system. 
And within all of that data, there is this tangled web of, you know, of, of, of centuries of sort of bias and discrimination that it's very, very difficult to disentangle yourself from. Um, so there have been some stories in the press about um, you know, racial bias and the extent of that racial bias um, within these algorithms. It's a little bit like the analogy I always try and give is if you do a Google image search for mathematician or maths professor, sorry, on, on Google, and you bring up the Google image search, I mean, I guess you could, you could all guess what you'll see. It's almost exclusively white men, right? I think there's two women in the top, uh, top 20 and I think one non-white face. And the thing is, those, that, that image is actually depressingly accurate. You know, 94% of professors in the UK uh, of maths are, are indeed male. Sometimes we don't actually want technology to be a mirror, right? We don't want it to reflect the society that we live in back to us. Sometimes I think there's an argument that you want technology to be there to nudge you in the direction that you want your society to move in. And there is a choice here. You could, if they wanted to, and I'm not suggesting that they should, but if Google wanted to, they could decide that they weren't, you know, happy with this Google image search being a mirror and could prioritise images of female professors or non-white professors over those of, of white males. Um, and it's the same thing in the criminal justice system. You can decide that actually just repeating the kind of um, injustices of the past or the, or the statistics that you that you've seen in the past and like projecting those forward into the future isn't what we want to do and you know you can instead nudge it in the direction that you want it to go in is that not what the ceo of twitter jack dorsey was trying to do his algorithm i'm, I'm not sure if you're aware but trump sent some of his wonderful tweets in august accusing twitter's algorithms of being having a left-wing bias Yes. I, yes. To be honest, I tend to try and stay away from Trump on Twitter for the sake of my mental health. Um. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. But I mean, just to make the point, actually, who is the arbiter then of algorithms? Well, and that is an enormous, enormous question. Because at the moment, up until now, there is no arbiter. Mm -hmm. You know, there, you have private companies making massive decisions that impact on, you know, everything from our justice system to our healthcare systems. And they're making them within within uh, you know closed boardrooms rather i think these are the kind of things that should be public debate really i think these are the kind of things that you that you should be debating in westminster um you know and in newspapers not within closed doors private companies tell me something else i, I want to talk about data and about nudging and and behavioral mm. economics mm -hmm. tell me how algorithms are being used in advertising Oh, gosh. Okay. So the first people really to recognize the value in our data were actually the supermarkets. Um, and Tesco in particular, they were a real sort of leader in this field. So back in 1993, when they launched their club card, which actually a lot of people credit as the reason why they overtook Sainsbury's as the, the most popular um, supermarket in the United Kingdom. You know, I think we're all quite comfortable or, or we're aware of the fact that when you use something like a loyalty card, the supermarket will then know what you buy and send you out coupons that try and get you to buy more of the stuff you're already buying. I think what we're not totally aware of, of is how much you can infer from just what's in our shopping baskets. Um, so there was a very famous story from America, a, a shop called Target. It's kind of like, like Woolworths, I guess. Sort of, you, you can buy everything in there, right? 
and they have a, a similar, or they don't have a loyalty card, sorry, that, but they work and work out who you are based on who, your credit cards and when you fill in forms and that kind of thing. So they, they have a, a database of their customers and they know when they spend money in their shop. Um, so they brought on this new statistician who started doing some analysis and he worked out something quite clever, which is that if you have a female customer who suddenly starts buying loads of unscented body lotion, the chances are that if you scroll back in time by about three months, she will have started also buying some vitamins, right? Uh, scroll back in time a little bit further and she'll have stopped buying alcohol. And if you roll forwards in time, the unscented body lotion, by the way, is for stretch marks, um, that if you scroll forwards in time, you can even predict, uh, this, I mean, this woman is essentially pregnant, right? You can even predict when the woman will give birth based on when she starts buying cotton wool, okay? So what they started doing, right, was having, for all of their female customers, they had something called the pregnancy predictor. So it was uh, a statistical thing that ran in the background and uh, when you bought enough of a certain product or your pattern of behavior, behavior reached over a certain threshold, it would kind of ping and uh, assume that you were pregnant or, or likely to be pregnant. And it would send you out some coupons in the post, okay? Now, up until this point, it's like, well, that's a bit creepy, but it's not terrible. Except that um, in Minneapolis one day, a father of a teenage girl um, walked into a Target store and was absolutely furious that his teenage daughter had received these pregnancy coupons in the post. And he was like, you're normalizing teenage pregnancy. This is abhorrent. You know, why are you treating her in this way? It's just really awful. So um, they apologized. He went home. And then the next day, the area manager called up his home to apologize again. And by which time... <laughs> He, on, in the phone call, basically said, actually, I think I owe you an apology. Um, there were some things happening in my house that I wasn't aware of. And I think, essentially, that we've got to the point where, um, you know, a supermarket algorithm trying to advertise to you tells your, your dad about your pregnancy before you've even had a chance to. I mean, I think that's really very far over the, the creepy line. But you know, this stuff was like, that was a decade ago. Things have moved on since then in really, really creepy ways. So there are these um, data brokers who have files on essentially every single one of us. And the things that they're inferring are eye-watering. So things like standard stuff like our, our, our age, our name, our, our gender, you know, um, our worth, our, our net worth, but also things like really personal stuff like our, our sexuality, um, but not just our, our, our declared sexuality, our, our true sexuality as well. You know, whether you've ever had, uh, whether your parents were divorced when you were young, um, whether you've had an abortion, whether you've had a miscarriage, whether you've used drugs, all of these things, there are files on essentially all of us on a server somewhere which, uh, where people have calculated all of this stuff. Um, I think that a lot of the bias that we're seeing at the moment doesn't necessarily uh, imply that people are being either you know, racist or particularly trying to discriminate against you know, a socioeconomic group or any of those things. I think sometimes it's just genuinely silly emissions so there was one example of a Taiwanese American lady who had a Nikon camera and she would take photos of her and her family and the camera would keep flashing up saying did someone blink 
And she responded to this message by uh, doing a blog post, which essentially said, no, I didn't blink, I'm just Asian, right? And essentially, what, you know, it's, it's a real indication of the lack of diversity in the design process that you can have such a glaring omission. And you know these kind of algorithms, particularly the facial recognition algorithms, it's, there's nothing about them that makes them work better on Caucasian faces than any others. In fact, you know, the people who lead the charge in the world actually are the Chinese on facial recognition. And yet, often facial recognition algorithms, you know, things like the the funny faces that work on Facebook or Snapchat, don't work on faces with darker skin. And it's just you know this is just the fact that the people who are designing these are, do not have that diversity in their team and are just making these omissions. As to how you counter it, I think that it has to be, absolutely has to be an independent process. It cannot be the same people who are designing these. I mean, I, I, I like to think that these groups are, you know, the, the companies that we're, that we're describing here are pushing for diversity as much as possible in the process. I think that is on the agenda. I think they are trying to do that. But I think that this has to be something that happens independently. And I, what I'd really like to see is, you know, like an FDA type thing, but for algorithms, where a proprietary piece of software is tested for biases, and then those biases are made very clear. Like you when you you know you get a prescription it says side effects, side effects may include blah 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 you know like that kind of thing I'd like to see algorithms come with those with those sort of um, warnings IBM's Watson it when it beat Jeopardy do you know about this so it played this American game show called Jeopardy and beats the sort of reigning champion at it and it was all very clever it was kind of a bit of a publicity stunt but it was all very clever but the really clever thing I think that it did during that process is rather than just saying here's an answer rather than just picking an answer and, and, and shouting it out. It actually gave three answers at the same time, and it gave a confidence in each answer. It gave a probability of how likely it thought that was to be the answer. So when it was uh, uncertain, you could see it. It, it wore its uncertainty very proudly front and centre. And I think that that is actually, you know, in the mainstream, something we're sort of slightly moving away from. You know, with voice assistance, we say, where is the nearest pub? And it gives us one single answer. And maybe in that case, it's not particularly important. But I think in things like facial recognition that is being used by police forces or algorithms that predict whether or someone will go on to commit a crime in future or cancer diagnosis algorithms, I think that that's where it's really, really important that the algorithm is very honest about you know, just where the errors might lie, very honest about the fact that it can never be perfect. So that's Algorithms 101. Algorithms are transforming our world in countless positive ways. But there's a clear need for greater transparency and accountability when it comes to them. Maybe what we need is a sort of algorithm authority that can arbitrate internationally when algorithms go wrong. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to the Office Group and Assistant, no, Associate, no, Professor, oh, Hannah Fry. Printka and Miller's Gin. Techno Curious is produced by Pauline de Gurkhoff and Daisy Leach. Music composed by Matsudisu Mohajane and design by Sam. Editorial support came from Dana Harmon and Naomi Sheldon. Techno Curious is supported by 5x15 and the How To Academy. Join us next time when we'll be discussing cyber health and safety and how we can keep ourselves safe online. 
or you can join us at our live events. You can find out about them by visiting iamtechnocurious.com. <laughs>